Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, a podcast that explores life when it feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. This week's interview is with my friend who I knew I was going to interview as soon as I first came up with the idea for this podcast. Smokey is an anarchist, a psychiatric social worker, and a former anthropologist who lives in New York City, who has worked with a number of different disaster response groups over the past several decades. He's also done more to shape my understanding of community disaster relief than any other person, so of course I wanted to have him on. In this episode, we talk about the advantages urban environments have in prepping. Uh, We talk about how better organizing models are the way to save the world. We talk about how to apply your personal skills and specializations to community preparedness. We talk about the importance of agency and... Uh, Smokey gets into the the lack of importance of guns. He also talks about how he organizes in New York City in a way that is completely open to the public, which is fairly rare for anarchist organizing, and what has worked well about that. I'm excited to just get right into the interview because I think this one's real important, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Could you introduce yourself with whatever name you want to go by, uh, whatever pronouns you would want people to use, and what um, affiliations that you feel like saying you represent. Hi, I'm Smokey. I'm located in New York City. I've been an anarchist, I guess, now going on 30-some years. And I've worked with a variety of groups, and one of those groups uh, is Aftershock Action Alliance, which is a group that um, started doing uh, disaster uh, relief work uh, right after Katrina, and we did a bunch of work during Hurricane Sandy here in the Northeast, and we've written a lot about it, and uh, yeah, that's who I am. Cool. Um, I guess one of the things that I want to talk to you specifically about, I feel like a lot of the people I know who pay attention to preparedness are not urban. And I know that you live in New York City and your your work has always been focused around urban environments. And could you talk a little bit about what preparedness means in an urban environment? Sure. I mean, there's there's a couple of things people get wrong about, like, disaster and end of the world or shit hits the fan or apocalypse is the reality is if we take history as any kind of guide most people live so the chances are you are going to survive and actually most of your friends are going to survive that doesn't mean there won't be major disruptions and your lifestyle probably will not survive that's the important thing you think of the bubonic plague you think of some of the natural disasters even in localized areas for the most part most people survive it's their lifestyle and the cultural uh tropes and societies don't survive but most individuals will survive they may live in a very different way and they may live shorter but they will survive and then the other thing we know from history is that despite all the kind of zombie and mad max type approaches urban environments are the ones that survive the best Uh, and there's a variety of reasons for this um whether you're talking the black plague or things like that now the casualties are higher in higher density uh areas but if you look at economic disasters or things like that uh urban areas uh offer a lot of resiliency they have to because they exist in this kind of state of constant chaos with a veneer of order uh but there it's constantly chaotic even in extremely kind of totalitarian cities like say you know singapore or something like that there there's a comfort with chaos that is often not found uh in other um settlement patterns i should also say i guess that i I studied and I was a professional anthropologist, so I tend to look at things in a more of a cultural uh, kind of lens. One of the things that I end up talking about a lot with people is this idea that 
the idea of preparedness being like get ready to go hole up in a cabin with your like six friends or whatever is one of the main things that I'm interested in dispelling. And uh, it was actually your work that kind of first put me on this, um, gave me this understanding about how having more access to more complexity is a like more people with more skills, more people with different ideas is a a better way to survive. And but I, I I'm wondering what that looks like kind of practically in a in an urban environment. Like what does it look like practically to build communities that are prepared for change? Well, I think urban environments go through change much faster and more regularly and it's more punctuated and often more severe than rural areas, uh, if you think about it. Rural areas are valuable because they are the preserver of kind of history often. But urban areas go under quote-unquote renewal uh, in micro-generations. Entire neighborhoods will completely change in multiple times possibly in the lifetime of a single individual. So to be a urbanite is to be in constant change and having to adapt to new patterns and paradigms. Um, and, and some people won't be able to do that. Uh, but, but cities are kind of the colleges of chaos. Uh, mm -hmm. they, they get you prepared to deal with changes uh and cascading effects that uh rural and suburban places are much more stead and much more stable in some ways but it makes them more uh less resilient so we think of the cheetah on the savannah which is going extinct it's highly specialized it's, it's remained relatively unchanged uh whereas if you think of more like the hyena or the crow, or the rat, uh, they're constantly in environments that are constantly changing, and thus they have to be more adaptable. Okay, that makes sense. From a, from a practical level, what do you do personally in terms of preparedness for um, disaster or uh, you know, dramatic and sudden change? So I give up immediately the idea of self-sufficiency. That, mm -hmm. that, that is a, a foolish idea, especially in an urban setting, and it's unneeded. Um, what I do instead is I leverage the resources and skills I already have and try to maximize those and then connect up with other people who have different skills and resources. And that we create a community sufficiency as opposed to a self-sufficiency. It's a lot more valuable. Uh, obviously, you want to build in some redundancy. Uh, so it's not like a D&D &D party where you have a healer and you know a magic user. You want to probably have a variety of folks. Uh, and it makes it much easier in an urban environment to find those and to uh, have access to those resources. Okay. And not all resources are equal either, to be honest. What do you mean by that? Well, I'm going to say something very controversial. You'll get a lot of comments about this. But, uh, for example, I think guns uh, are a very poor resource uh, for um, sufficiency, community sufficiency, uh, surviving disasters or end-of-the-world situations, even though they're extremely popular uh, in our kind of media representation of what happens. And there's kind of a knee-jerk uh, understanding that, well, you have resources and people are going to come and take these resources, and guns are a way to protect uh, those resources and kind of level the playing field uh, around power, um, I believe, for very good reasons, that any community preparing for, you know, significant changes uh, that, again, going back to historical precedent, um, self-defense comes from self-organization and guns and uh, kind of personal weapons of mass destruction create these imbalances that makes self-organization very difficult. What do you mean by that in terms of 
the guns making self-organization harder? Because of the power differential and the uh, speed in which they are able to deliver kind of uh, catastrophic uh, decisions into a community. Essentially, so, the, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so I could kill you very quickly, and there's a lot of power in that. And when and it's concentrated and it's and it's uh, agnostic in the sense that anybody can use that gun uh, to utilize uh, that power uh, indiscriminately. So basically, the idea would be kind of comparable to how as. As an anarchist, I don't believe in taking state power during a revolution. I don't believe that power can be uh, put into an individual or a specific community's hands that could be wielded against everyone else. Is that you're kind of talking about that on an individual level? Yeah, uh, just like I don't like the idea of states having access to, you know, atmosphere and geological and sociological changing devices like nuclear weapons. Um, I don't I don't think it becomes any better when it's brought down to a personal level. Uh in the in in our most powerful personal uh at least sociological game changer is 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 um efficient and effective firepower. What do you think the the answer is to then to that, you know, other groups would or individuals would have access to these things do you say like is this an argument for um going unarmed or is this an argument for like minimizing their importance and preparedness or where would you, where do you take this i think either argument and it's two arguments mm -hmm. uh, an unarmed argument and a minimalist argument i think it's it's open to debate and question but the the key to making that work is rethinking this idea that resources are something that are hoarded and kept and uh kind of the tragedy of the commons mm -hmm. as opposed to a more of a uh sheep that shit grass kind of approach a porous approach mm -hmm. where more people coming into the community creates more resources uh and so there's no need to take these resources away mm -hmm. right? so you basically assimilate and incorporate uh people that have a a desire for your resources you have them available for them which is much more the world i want to live in anyways uh no that that makes sense to me. One of the things that I think about a lot with uh, disaster or apocalypse preparedness is I think about, you know, uh, imagining two different cities and one of them builds up. I, I feel like, from where I understand it, the world right now is has to pick between internationalism and nationalism. Uh, and I think that that polarization is happening very rapidly because if, you know, if the if large parts of the world are going to be no longer inhabitable or certainly not inhabitable in the same ways that people are currently inhabiting them, people are going to move and people are going to, we're going to have more and more climate refugees. And a lot of them are going to come into developed nations. And a lot of people in developed nations are basically saying, fuck you, we have ours, die. Um, and I'm really interested in presenting an internationalist critique to that. And I think that this gets into what you're talking about only on a community level I'm interested in the idea of like, what do you have where, yeah, instead of saying, oh no, there's now there's more people, they use up the resources. I'm interested in this, like, great, now there's more people. As long as we can organize like horizontally together, then there's all of these people who can do so much more. And it, even from an economic point of view, even if I was like a capitalist or something, it seems like really curious to me that we would complain about more people because like more people just like literally can grow economies. Like that's how things grow is you have more people doing more things i mean the engines of every economy have been just like wars are for the most part determined by rate and accuracy of firepower mm -hmm. uh economies are always about density okay. always, people 
uh, density. And that's always how it's been. And, and there's a lot of sociological and just kind of almost physics uh, involved in that. Now, there, don't get me wrong. Uh, density is not a, a automatic good, right? There's a lot of bad things. Uh, and it usually comes in how we've decided to organize density, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think you hit it on the head. I think the the big political divide is not a left-right kind of economic divide. It's really an internationalism versus nationalism. And I think a lot of even left um, kind of disaster preparedness, end-of-the-world preparedness kind of smacks to me of kind of like more on the idea of a nationalist kind of like we're going to protect ourselves and our people against these other people we haven't even met yet Mm -hmm. that are going to take our resource and somehow we're going to be able to enjoy our resources while all these other people die (laughs) (laughs) seems like not terribly it doesn't seem well rooted in the kind of uh, leftist tradition yeah. uh, I'm, I'm from. <laughs> yeah, one of the things I realized at some point is when I would analyze the like sort of Mad Max, you know, the, the traditional media representation of the end of the world, I realized that like me and my friends would actually probably be the rampagers. Um, I, you know, not because we like would specifically want to be bandits, but because like we would be accepting people and like being like, okay, we have all of these people. Now let us go and get the resources we need, you know? Um, but I also think it's like one of those shitty dichotomies that's presented to us by media where you're either like an evil warlord who's mobile or a little happy democracy that's nationalist as fuck with walls, you know? Right. And that's not, it, it takes a lot of energy to do either one of those. Mm-hmm. That that's the thing that's always shocking to me, the amount of energy to create walls or to break down walls is is quite high, mm-hmm. uh, and it's and it requires a lot of uh, skills and understanding, time and resources um, that are for the most part wasted. Um, because you're breaking down walls that other people are building or vice versa. Yeah. Uh, and in situations where there isn't that many resources, uh, to go around, uh, what you find in disaster places is that kind of mentality, at least at first disappears. Okay. And people are opening their houses to other people and, a lot of the hand-wringing about theft and violence is not there. It's only later uh, when uh, different people and different kind of norms start to come back and this this idea that people have to be managed and structured and how are we going to do that, um, you start to get that. But if you look at Katrina, you look at, you know, Sandy, you look at any of the many disasters, even the beginning of the Syrian war um, and many other, even like the place that everybody points as like, I've been reading a lot actually recently about Somalia. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's very interesting. I mean, it's a shit show now. Uh, it's less of a shit show than it was say 10 years ago, but, uh, but the beginning of it was very interesting. Um, but there's this, there's this desire to, we're very susceptible to poor organizing structures. Mm -hmm. So how do you head off that kind of, yeah, one of the things that I try and talk about when I talk about disasters, I like, I point out that like people come together during crisis and the best example I can give is that if you're waiting at a bus stop you don't talk to anyone. You don't make eye contact. It's really weird if someone talks to you. But then as soon as the bus is like five minutes late, everyone is friends, you know? Um, exactly. But so how do you then head off this violence that comes back in through people essentially reinstituting organizational structures or power? 
One is you you do as much as you can to reduce the power uh, because it's not the best idea wins. Often it is uh, you you have these concentrated bits of power around. Uh, and that could be anything from guns, which we talked about, but it can also be how you structure decision making. Mm-hmm. If you have elections and things like that, or the idea that we need leaders or things like that, these are all ways that the abstract concept of power gets solidified. And so you have to create systems that show that efficiency can occur, resources and needs, resources can be spread to needs. Uh, without these things and you have to do them at the beginning and then to be perfectly honest very vigilant about the encroachment of those Mm -hmm. so (laughs) here's where my my knee-jerk argument for guns comes in if it's not about defending resources what if it's about defending organizational structures uh if it's about defending like a developing way of life from say like um a a competing authoritarian way that is attempting to subjugate your community that you're building well i think the problem is that you're still going to have these highly concentrated bits of power Mm -hmm. inside your own community yeah so it's like uh, it's sort of like Rome when it was like, oh, we got all these barbarians at the gate. We, as a republic, we need to elect a temporary dictator mm-hmm. to be more efficient. Well, that only goes, historically, that only goes one way. Mm-hmm. You never come back to the republic from that. So, you know, I don't think guns are any more dangerous than elections, to be honest. <laughs> Yeah, they're both about power. Uh, It's about power and how you how you and and I think capitalism is another way that you know uh, it's been a very efficient way in concentrating power and it's been very effective and very stable for a very long time. Yeah, and I think you know that's why I'm interested in disaster and kind of uh, major sociological changes. Uh, that you know, people often call apocalyptic changes um, because of the momentary chance to uh, try to create systems that don't have to both dismantle power and be effective, right? So power gets dismantled temporarily maybe. I don't think people want to be subjugated. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong, but that that that's my my working premise is people don't want to be subjugated, and that bad ideas come about because there's power behind them. Mm-hmm. And so if you could if you could create if you have the open space to create efficient and effective organizing principles, they will eventually spread. But right now we can't do that because we also also have to confront really century old uh, power structures and really concentrated segments of power, which we have to dismantle while also trying to effectively uh, create these counter uh, organization, organizational principles and, Mm -hmm. and groupings. Yeah. One of the things that I've realized um, as an, when I kind of left only hanging out with anarchists where we all have this one or a, a limited idea of how to organize we organize as anarchists when we organize together you know um, and I started hanging out in different social circles I realized that a lot of that that's not something that as many people have focused on and what's been interesting to me is realizing that in a a group of 20 people where everyone's kind of looking for someone to put forward initiative. If someone puts forward initiative, that's like an authoritarian idea. Like basically I'm going to be the de facto leader and this is, you know, what I'm going to basically be in charge or whatever. I found that I've had really good luck with kind of putting forward just different principles, like putting forward, basically being like, okay, 
let's figure out what we all want to do and then do it together. Um, and I found people are, are way more receptive to that and way more receptive to different ideas of organizing than I, than I would have expected. And that actually, it gives me a lot of hope for crisis situations. I guess sometimes I, I think of like the thing to do in crisis situations is that we have to be part of having a voice about how we should restructure. You know, if, if the current infrastructure fails, we should have a voice in trying to create other ways of organizing our infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, both at Katrina and at Sandy, I remember being at these meetings with hundreds of people just trying to figure out, you know, how we're going to organize the work that needs to be done and take care of people and things like that. We never had elections or officers or treasurer, treasurers or all this kind of stuff because the these you know it was no longer status quo it was a mm -hmm. was an emergency time however i go to my uh they're trying to change the bus routes which would be terrible here in my neighborhood uh, that you know they're so i went to a meeting and there were like 25 of us and immediately it was like who's going to be the treasurer who's going to be an officer we're going to have to be a nonprofit. you know there's a lot of energy that goes into these kind of structures and 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 i was like well maybe we don't need to do that you know but i think unless you have something major happen uh people default because this is the way they've been trained every you know school group everything they see on tv everything has been saying this is how we organize uh, as a people and that's why you know you know, places like Brazil and shit like that have trouble with like indigenous peoples because they don't organize that way. They organize in a different way. I'm not saying necessarily better, or but there's this idea that there's this one way to organize people mm -hmm. to get to be effective. And for the most part, it's not terribly effective. Research <laughs> has shown it's not terrible. If you're like a social science nerd like myself, you, you go there and you see all these great inefficiencies mm -hmm. in these supposedly highly effective organizational structures. So they take a lot of energy. So when there isn't a lot of energy to go around, they fall apart. Uh, we just have to create a new memory of effective organizational models. Because people are like, no, that won't work, right? But if it's working, People are very pragmatic, especially in disaster situations. That's kind of like um, one of the things that I know in some of your other work you do, um, you know, social work and, and therapy. And mm -hmm. you're talking about reprogramming neural pathways with like healthier coping mechanisms versus the, the deeply laid in roads. I, I remember I was listening to one um, one person talk about it as basically being like, you have to clear a path through the jungle to make the new path so that it's easier and easier for you to take that path instead of always going down the same terrible path you've been going down your whole life that is much better paved by by you having done it. Right. And that and it it takes time. The problem why things like so why why isn't the you know ninth ward where there were a lot of interesting organizations, needs were being met. Uh, anarchists and other folks were there for years. Uh, why is that not a radical hotbed or a leftist, you know, uh, mainstay today? Is because it often takes quite a long time. Uh, and obviously, the state didn't disappear; it had a lot of force to build, and it disrupted those things. But any disaster or major change has to probably remain for at least a generation, uh, I, I think. Maybe it will happen faster. I don't know. I could be wrong. But it, it's going to take time regardless. Yeah. One of the um, – this goes back into something you were saying a, a bit ago that I was just thinking about is I recently talked with uh, – a friend who will probably end up on the show who just came back from Roshava doing medical work. And one of the things he was saying, and this, this is about the, the militancy thing you were talking about and the kind of 
the centralization of mil of power, the power that comes from a gun or whatever. Um, he was saying that one of the things that they they apparently work on very hard there, and I don't know to what degree it's successful. I'm not sure is avoiding the centralization of military force and how like a lot of these cities like you know um like he's there doing medical work and the fighters who he's treating are like you know grandmothers who've never fought a day in their life who maybe um you know are in many ways physically infirm or are like not the kind of idealized fighter that uh, including western leftists like idolize i don't know yeah, I mean, I think it's difficult in a place, you know, as you know, I have many connections uh, with Rojava and have been following that for since the very beginning. Um, it's difficult. It's 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 difficult uh, because it was such a localized disaster, right? Mm -hmm. In many ways, you know, Turkey wasn't you know in iran in the u.s and russia um it would have played out probably very differently if it had happened somewhere else as opposed to kind of the eye of the geopolitical world right yeah uh, but what you see happen is that the the needs of the self-defense override the needs of the effectiveness of self-organization right yeah and you you see that very clearly in rojava uh you know where the zapatistas because of where they're located mm -hmm. which is not so geopolitically uh important uh have a lot more breathing room to be able to play around with different uh, structures that makes for sense. a very long period of time yeah yeah i was thinking about those places because when you're talking about it would take a generation to change cultural norms to different organizational styles and obviously places both Rojava and chiapas have kind of advantages in some ways that there are it seems like their political ideology is like kind of a syn syncretic thing between um leftism and indigenism and so they get to kind of draw on some culture that they've um have access to you know even if it's a kind of interrupted access yeah to it's it. very interrupted i mean they're yeah. both those cultures were systematically attempted to be destroyed the language and and their their background right yeah so if someone listening to this is interested in preparing in this in an urban environment or anywhere and obviously like doesn't want to just understand preparedness as get lots of beans and rice and ammunition. Um, right. What, what does that look like in terms of you're talking about making connections with your D and D party or rather you're much larger than D and D party. And does that mean your neighbors? Does that mean people you share political affinity with? Like where do you start? Both. Uh, first you start with yourself mm -hmm. and your media group. So what, what am I good at? Okay, what am I interested in? And what if a disaster happened and a normal structure wasn't around? What do I have that I'm interested in that I already have some skills in, maybe I went to school, that would be a value in a disaster? And mm -hmm. almost everybody, I would say everybody has some strengths. Now, they're, they may be weak at this point. You may... They may be dependent on technologies and other structures like transportation and things like that that may be disrupted. So then you're figuring out what would I need to do to be able to be most helpful in this bad situation. So if I am a, you know, me, I'm a social worker or a psychiatric social worker. So mental health is a big thing. So what would I need to be able to have here? To be able to reach people, what do, what new skills might I need to learn uh, to be able to maximize and leverage uh, that? If you're a musician, you know what what would I need 
to be able to do. Why, why would music be useful? What parts of the music would be useful? Probably selling T-shirts would not be useful <laughs> or knowing how to press CDs or uh, figuring out being really good at tours. All that probably won't be that useful, but music will be something that people will still value. And I know from Katrina and Sandy and these places, music was still a value to mm -hmm. people. Right. But but it had to be done in a slightly different way. And so how do I how do I take what little storage room I have, whether it's a closet or a steamer trunk or a camping backpack or or if I'm lucky, a whole garage or an attic, what stuff in there would I need to have to be able to do my thing? Um, one of the worst uh, post-apocalypse movies, but. One of the most interesting lessons, I think, is mm. The Postman. Yes. It's a terrible I, – I, I do not <laughs> recommend watching it. Uh, the book is only slightly better. Um, but what's interesting is this this idea that, you know, he – it starts with him not as a postman, despite the name of it, <laughs> but as an actor, right? He, he's an actor. He, he gets – a small group of other people that are actors and they're, they're doing Shakespeare and stuff like that in these community to community. But that's not really what that communities needed. They needed communication. They needed to feel not isolated. And so he pretended to be a postman. Mm -hmm. So he still used the same acting skills. He finds a uniform of a dead postman and a bag and stuff mm -hmm. like that. But he creates, and then he, he, creates a whole group of people that are pretending that communications and are, and they're actually doing it, but it's taking something as obscure as acting like, well, how important is acting, right? You really need to learn first aid and, and, and how to run generators or build solar panels. All these skills, most of these skills are useful. Certain skills are not being a middle manager is not going to be useful. <laughs> you know, um, being an advertising exec is not going to be useful. But you will probably have some things you're interested in, and then you're going to need to, to think it out, run it run it through, and collect resources to allow you to be able to do it in a completely different environment uh, than you're in now. Okay. What does that look like, for example, with uh, psychiatric care or social work? So you're not going to probably have access to the medications, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one thing you have to decide. Well, am I going to learn how to make medications? Am I going to look into herbal stuff? Did the research. I, you know, a lot of the herbal stuff I don't find that useful and it's hard to grow. You know, so you you start kind of laying out those things like, okay, well, then people are going to have crises and how does – how do disasters affect psychology? Actually, not in the way that you would expect. Suicide goes way down. Uh, psychotic breaks go way down uh, because everybody is needed and there's there's usefulness and meaning in people's life. People's lives get imbued with meaning very quickly. Um, you know, so you start, well, okay, running groups, that might be useful. How do you do that? Uh, you know, and, and so you start running through all those things and you start to decide, okay, I'm going to need certain things. I'm going to need places where people can go and be away from the group. So what does that look like? Does that look like a tent? Does that look like this? Does that look like what needs to be in there? Uh, communication. How can somebody be able to be in communication with me? If I'm one of very few psychiatric social workers or psychiatric or mental health professionals uh, serving my neighborhood of 72,000 people, how do I do that? The 50-hour minute is not going to work, right? Uh, what, what do I know about PTSD and, and what are some ways in which you can reduce that from happening? Uh, and how, how would you organize people to take care of each other? How, how can I teach? Can I teach what I know to people and how long would it take and what would I need to do that? Would I need written material? Well, I can write all that material. I'm going to have that material already written out. 
or, you know, or am I going to just have one copy because it's easier for me to store one copy in a mimeograph machine? So you start, you start kind of laying this stuff out. You see how that works? Yeah. Um, there's two things from that that I, I'd be curious to explore more, and they're probably related. I, I think they're related. One is you talk about how people feel imbued with meaning during a crisis. And I think about um, the, what is it, the Superdome in Katrina, you know, and this idea that people were protected, um, but sort of lost agency. Um, and I'm not trying to talk shit on the people who chose to go to the, I've not, you know, I'm not trying to claim I would, I don't know what I would do in that situation, you know. Um, but I, I'm I'm curious how so how do we make structures that make sure we imbue people with meaning and agency and I think it's related how do we minimize PTSD during crisis Right well and I don't think I mean that to me that's a strong thing that happens you can't minimize trauma mm -hmm. because it's a traumatic event right what you want to do is minimize the chronic trauma I don't think PTSD drove people to the superdome Oh yeah, I no. I meant that, that I, I I'm under the impression that agency is one of the things that keeps yes, people from agency having is is a is a inoculant to uh, PTSD. It's one of the best inoculants in connection. Uh, so disasters tend to bring people together. That's why the bunker mentality mm -hmm. is a terrible idea, and those people will not do particularly well. Uh, just mathematically, it's a bad idea, but psychologically. And organizationally, it's a terrible idea. Mm -hmm. And what we found is interesting with PTSD, it's not just a connection to one person. Even weak connections to many people is stronger than, because normally, I imagine my own psychology that when traumatic events happen to me, I go to my wife. Mm -hmm. Um but I'm actually psychologically stronger if I go to my wife, but also my friends, my coworkers, and I have all these conversations. That tends to make it. Uh, all the research shows the the strength of weak ties is 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 a real thing. Okay. So disasters bring people together in groups. Uh, I mean, there was a concerted energy to remove agency from the people in Katrina mm -hmm. and to uh, a lesser degree at Sandy. Uh, in FEMA, all you have to do is read the FEMA manuals. And, or if you don't want to read those, you can just simply read uh, Naomi Klein's uh, shock doctrine. That this is very well thought out uh, and it's very effective ways to keep people. She uses shock, but. You, you would use traumatized or PTSD to keep them in this state of dependency. Mm -hmm. um, so the the kind of last thing I want to ask you about, if you are down to talk about it in this context, um, we talk, hopefully on the show, it will not be just preparedness for apocalypse, but also theoretically averting apocalypse, you know, saving the world, um, overthrowing the governments and giving people agency in their lives. And... Uh, I know you work with Mac, the, and mm -hmm. uh, I'm wondering if you could talk about that organizing structure and what that looks like and what Mac so is. Ma Mac stands for, the, it's a mouthful, it's a terrible name actually, but <laughs> it stands for Metropolitan Anarchist Coordinating Council. Uh, and basically it's a broad tent anarchist uh, group. It started now almost four years ago. It is one of the largest ongoing anarchist groups. It's the largest in the city and one of the largest uh, probably in the country. And it, it is trying to figure out ways in which to, you know, take anarchist ideas and infuse them in a variety of struggles and a variety of theaters, because I don't think we know what is most effective. Just because you know what the problem is, doesn't necessarily mean that is the best way to address it. So, like, I don't think anybody listening to a podcast like this or listening to you isn't going to put climate uh, disaster as and basically destruction of the entire planet as not in their top one or two <laughs> issues, right? Yeah. 
But the question is, how do we go about addressing that? And how did we get there? Uh, was it a group of people eagerly wringing their hands and planning the destruction of the planet? No, it came through all these other things uh, that allowed that. And so I think what's good about anarchism is that it doesn't say there's that anarchism is one of the few political uh, attitudes that accepts complexity and is not a reductionist. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and thus it allows it to be very open. Uh, and I think, I don't think Mac is going to save us from any disaster. <laughs> uh, I, I just think it is, what we have now I, at best it's an interim uh platform uh i don't know what the answer is as you well know yeah something i've been struggling with for decades i've tried a lot of different things <laughs> i've been able to mark them off the list of nope that didn't work that didn't work um but just because a lot of things don't work it doesn't mean you're necessarily on the wrong path uh yeah, you know, it, we're dealing with incredibly complex behavior, and it's constantly changing. Is the problem? Yeah. Well, could you talk about? Uh, yeah, obviously, Mac won't be the solution to climate change, or you know, it won't single-handedly destroy global capitalism or anything like that. But um, at least from an outside perspective, it's been one of the more uh, productive anarchist groups in terms of. Um, bringing people in and bringing people in a way in, in a way that isn't as subcultural as a lot of, um, I mean, it's not anti-subcultural, but it's not like I joined the punk scene. So then I became an anarchist, but it's it, when I've talked to you about this in the past, it's that you said you've had a lot of luck with people coming in, uh, like slightly older than teenagers and like people from different walks of life. And so I'm curious if you could talk about, what the structure of Mac is, like how people could, you know, replicate something like it or whether they would want to. So Mac is weird in that it is not subcultural at all. In fact, I think subcultural people stay away from Mac. And as you know, Margaret, I, I've always been a fan of the subcultural. <laughs> <laughs> so it's very strange for me to find myself in this organization that completely lacks any kind of subcultural uh identifiers at all um which i think is i don't i don't think it's a strength or a detriment it, it just is what it is mm -hmm. uh it is tends to be older people not people in college necessarily it tends to be people that have a lot of skills uh have uh are fairly recent to anarchist politics but not recent to politics mm -hmm. and thinking themselves as political entities and they're mostly coming together because there is strength in finding other like-minded people and having space to explore it and kind of live it. So it's organized in that Mac is actually just made up of working groups. Mm -hmm. uh, all the decision-making is done in working groups, and anybody can create a working group. And at any given time, there's probably a dozen. Some have lasted the entire three to four years. Some only last a couple months. Never get some. Never get off the ground. Uh, the assemblies happen monthly. Uh, they every single month they meet, and the working groups uh, report back. There's usually a discussion about some overall topic, and then there's a chance to go meet the people in the working groups. Uh, some are closed, but most are open. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that people are building affinity and. For me, not everybody in Mac would agree with me, but for me, it is a platform more than an organization. It's a platform to build affinity for for people to find things that they're interested in. And what we've seen is a lot of these working groups have spun off to full-on collectives and projects on their own, mm -hmm. uh, disconnected from Mac, uh, that I think have made the city a better place, or at least more anarchist and radical thought in the city by spinning off and becoming its own thing. So I think it's a great platform. I think in, in smaller areas or areas where you have less of a transient uh, population, I'm not sure Mac is such a great model it's because it's, it's a really good model for 
creating affinity. And I think the advantages, I may have come across as an urban snob, but I think the <laughs> advantages of smaller towns, urban or suburban and rural areas is that when I travel to those places, and I'm from uh, rural area in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. uh, when you travel to those places, you find deeper affinity. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's easy to build affinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think in urban settings, one of the problems of density is even though you got all these people, and undoubtedly there's hundreds, of, if not thousands of people that share your interest, actually building affinity is very difficult. And I see Mac as a platform for anarchists to build affinity by doing work uh, together. Okay. Is it open to the public? Like, is, will someone yeah. see a flyer and be like, oh, anarchy, what's that? And go to Mac? Yep. Yep. And it's weird. We've had, uh, we've had like, it's not uncommon. I've never been in a place like that where it's like father and son or mother and daughter come to a Mac general assembly together. Mm -hmm. They'll they'll see, they'll see a flyer about the general assembly. They won't, uh, they won't necessarily see a flyer about a particular working group, like ecological working group or the legal working group or the anarchist feminist working group. They may or may not, um, but they'll come to the general assembly and there will be all these groups kind of represented. They'll be giving report backs on what they were doing. Uh, there'll be all this information. And some are structured slightly different than others. But uh, it's very interesting, yeah. Uh, I would say we probably get between 60 and 100 people every month. And probably 20 of those or 25 of those are brand new. That this is their first General Assembly. And we have a whole process for welcoming new people. There's an orientation, kind of letting them know what's going on and how to get involved. And I think that's, that's important. But I think, again, rural, suburban, small towns do this automatically. Yeah. I think it's a weirdly urban phenomenon where I've been an anarchist for decades. I'll go to an anarchist meeting and I feel completely alienated and nobody talks to me, <laughs> it, you know, and I'm like, really, <laughs> you know, this is fucking bizarre. Whereas I've never had that experience going to a small town or a suburban when we've done various tours sometimes together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it's a very different feeling. It's people go out of their way to welcome you and get to know you and, and yeah. figure out how you can connect to what's going on. And I think that's one of the real advantages of, of non-dense yeah. places. Well, it's actually, I mean, it's interesting because I became an anarchist in New York City and had a very hard time becoming an anarchist. You know, I, yeah, I, it's uh, difficult. Yeah, I, I, I like wasn't cool enough. I was like the wrong kind of weird subcultural kid. I was like, you know, a, just like a weirdo goth in 2002 and I was like the wrong kind of one, you know? And... It wasn't until I like left New York City and, you know, it was a very different style at the time, you know, I by by wearing patched up Carhartts and like stopping combing my hair, all of a sudden like I'd go to meetings and people would take me seriously. Um, which is funny to imagine now because the opposite would certainly happen to, to someone in the same outfit. Um but one of the things I've always liked about small town anarchy is I think one of I think I mean it's an advantage, but one of the reasons it's an advantage is that um, there's not as many people here and we like need everyone. And so yep. there's more of a, um, I've always been impressed by what smaller, like small city anarchism, like puts out per capita, you know, they're more likely to have these projects that are hyper productive or whatever. But yes, that's actually nice. what's one of the things that's so fascinating to me about Mac is um, the ability to inject that into a uh, much larger like, I mean, New York City just literally has more capacity to do more than almost anywhere in the U.S. Just because there's so many people um, who can do so much. If we're talking back to what we were talking about before about how, like, more people and more density in some ways is more uh, potential. Yeah. Um, could you talk about what some of the working groups have done when you say some of the things that people have done to make the city a, a better so there's place? Re- there's really, like, three kinds of working groups I've seen. Uh, one is, like, uh, topical, you know, like uh, anti-ice, uh, ecological, 
anarchist feminist where they're you know they're they're groups of people that are organizing around particular topics mm-hmm. uh and 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 causing actions like the occupy ice came out of mac and a lot of the feminist initiatives that are going on in the city came out of the anarcho fems of mac and and so on and so forth mm-hmm. and a lot of the ecological stuff uh they you know they work in partnership with uh, extinction rebellion uh, and and have done a lot of protests. So that, there's that group, and then there's a whole number of groups that are just support, uh, not just Mac but radical active. So that you have Mac Legal, which has its own lawyer on retainer and has a bail fund and sends out its own anarchist legal observers and helps craft legal strategy. You have a jail support group uh, that deals with people that end up having to go through the court system or the prison system and, and connect to political prisoners. Uh, you have uh, an arts group that produces the flags and the propaganda and the posters and the flyers uh, for not just Mac groups, but other radical groups. Um, and then you have a third group, which is more like a learning uh, group. Uh, there's a, group called ACAB, which is Anarchists Care About Books, which is basically a, a radical book club. Uh, they've they've read, as you know, they've read one of your books <laughs> as theirs. Uh, so it's, it's a lot of fiction books. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, uh, but then there's like the theory group, there's the economics group, which are kind of looking at, there's a history group uh, that's looking at anarchism and kind of getting to understand all these ideas of like, oh, what does, you know, cooperation really mean? Or, you know, what does decentralization, how does that work? Uh, And things like that. So they kind of break into those different, that doesn't mean that there aren't people involved in multiple groups, Mm -hmm. uh, but it has that nice. And then there's, we do a lot of social activities uh, because the idea is to really build uh, affinity. Okay. If someone in New York is interested in uh, going or learning, how can they do that? They can just go, you know, they can just go to Google and put Mac NYC okay. or Anarchist N- NYC. It's like one of the first things that pop up. And every month, they should go to a general assembly. Uh, that's how you join a working group. Uh, so that's the filter and once you go to one general assembly you're a member of mac and you get all the access to everything mac has and all the working groups have access to all the funds that mac raises and the legal and the printing and so it's kind of like so that each group doesn't have to reinvent or or have to do each thing. It kind of goes back to our very beginning of this podcast where Mm -hmm. self-sufficiency is not necessarily the most efficient way to do things. Yeah. Uh, Community efficiency is a much better way to do things. So every affinity group shouldn't have to know about the law and shouldn't have to do a fundraising activity and find a place to print posters and no graphic design and computer security that you know, it's it's better to draw upon all those skills. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, we're just about at the hour mark, so I'm gonna, uh, I guess, cut it off here. Unless there's, uh, is there anything more that we haven't hit upon that you feel like is important for our, our listeners to know about the end of the world or ending the end of the world or anything like that? I just don't know how you're going to effectively organize in an. I'm not sure how anarchist principles actually are effective against zombie hordes. That is that 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 is what I have not been able to crack yet. I don't know if decentralization is going to be an effective strategy for them. <laughs> Good to know. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like and share and subscribe and do all the things. You know, it helps quite a lot. It's pretty much the only way that 
anyone will hear about this podcast is through you telling people, whether it's in person or online, or telling algorithms that you like it. That actually seems to work a little bit too. If you'd like to support the podcast more directly, you can support it at patreon.com slash Margaret Kiljoy. I actually, I put out a zine every month, and if you support me at any level, you can um, access that zine digitally, or for $10 a month, I'll mail you a copy anywhere in the world. It's usually fiction, sometimes it's memoir, sometimes it's different essays, things like that. And also, if you are facing political persecution from the state, you can, basically, if you're on trial for any crime that I would probably advocate for, you can contact me and I'll give you access to everything for free. Also, if you live off of less money than I make on Patreon, uh, contact me and I'll give you access to all of my content for free. I try and do as much content for free as I can, like all of these podcasts. But it's a lot of work to run podcasts. And so this podcast probably wouldn't exist if it wasn't for my Patreon supporters. And in particular, I'd like to thank Chris and Nora and Willow and Haas the dog and Kirk and Natalie and Eleanor. Thank you all so much. You genuinely are the reason that this is happening. Thank you. Join us next week when I talk to an anarchist medical worker who recently returned from the autonomous region of northern Syria. And we talk about his experiences there and how they might be applicable to the times of crisis elsewhere. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week.